AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello and welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for April 14th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here. Matt Kaiser. How's Welcome, it, Matt. How's it going? I'll try not to call you Stan today. I'm not sure why that happens, but... I appreciate it. <laughs> it's flattery, though, if you're calling him Stan. Stan's pretty sure. Here we go. And John Hugelman. Welcome, John. Thanks. I'm Brian Rexroad, and uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, some of the more spooky things that are going on. And <laughs> sorry, it's all right. I can't help it. I got the giddies today. It's all right. You got to start with a pun. Um, got to start with something. So this is a bug they're calling Phantom. FireEye researchers found this interesting bug and named it after the um, the ghost bug that was, I think, in GLibc a couple months back. Yeah, yeah a few months back. Year, yeah. Yeah. So the idea in this bug is that it's it's a bug in the core networking code of mm -hmm. iOS, which has since been patched. But mm -hmm. it turns out that if you can control the, the proxy settings for an iOS device, you can actually cause certain uh, use after free bugs to manifest and crash certain processes, which is mostly annoying. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that someone found that you can use it to actually crash the activation lock feature mm -hmm. on iOS devices. Now, activation lock. It's not completely a locking a device out. I mean, you can still use the device when activation lock is turned on, but what you can't do is wipe the device or set up a new iTunes profile. Mm -hmm. So basically, this, is, this vulnerability allows thieves to steal a phone and then remove that lock functionality and then go ahead and, and wipe the phone. I haven't seen it done in practice. The videos I've seen online seem to indicate that it causes massive instability in iOS. As in, you know, you start trying to do anything once the uh, the malicious proxy is set up, and apps just will not run. If you mm. reboot the device in the video that I saw, you can't even use the swipe to unlock. You're, you've kind of hosed up your device pretty good. So there's multiple ways of actually using this bug. If you can control the the proxy.pack file, uh, the proxy autoconfig, or you know, you can push a, a malicious configuration profile, which is something that iOS devices support. Mm -hmm. You can push this, this proxy setting as well. I, I think someone mentioned you can do it with a malicious DNS server that also provides other settings. But um, right. yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It looks like it's been patched, though, which is good. So right. if, if anybody has an iOS device, now is the time to patch. So do you know what versions of iOS this affects? I believe it affects versions um, in iOS 8. I don't recall the exact numbers, but the, the the links that go in the show notes should have the affected versions. Okay, yeah, because that's uh, I think that's going to be an important thing. I think they just came out with uh, eight dot one dot three. Eight eight point three is the one that just came out in the last week, but there are some issues for for folks like me who use uh, iOS devices um, in aviation uh, that. There are some folks suggesting holding off on 8.3 because there's an issue with um, Bluetooth GPSs oh. and iPads. So mm. Mm. hopefully that'll get solved quickly. I, I know that 8.4 is in beta already, so hopefully that'll be fixed soon. So keeping a good line of uh, patches coming out for iOS, that's a good thing. <laughs> Keeping up on those things. 
that sounds like an interesting one. I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to hear some more about that going forward or if it's uh, just the f fundamental of the patching process is going to kind of make it obviate the need. Well, luckily, Apple does have that, you know, patching pretty much gets done on a regular schedule. Mm -hmm. um, there may be people who aren't connecting their devices to an external network and not getting those patches. It's, there's always that long tail of patching that yeah. there's only going to be at least one, maybe a handful of devices out there that don't get what they ought to be getting. Mm -hmm. I have encountered some people, and I'm not going to name my wife here, okay. but, but I have encountered some people that take so many pictures that there's not enough memory to actually do the update. So, oh, that's <laughs> huh. so that's one of the things to keep I in mind. I know someone's that, wife who has the same problem. <laughs> you know, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the fact of the matter is that that is a that is one of the constraints that you can run into is probably something that for folks to keep in mind that is um, if you're if you are a memory user on the device to go you know when you go to purchase a device go for the next uh, higher uh, memory capacity, but uh, nevertheless, pay attention to how the memory is being used because you do need a reasonable amount of space to be able to, to download the new load simultaneous with what's already loaded on there. Right, to patch it, yeah. And important piece. Okay, so uh, Jim, let's uh, go to you here. Now, this is an iOS, but it's uh, OS X, I guess, uh, some new patches out associated with that as well. Right, yeah, this was a busy week for Apple patches. They they released patches for um, Apple TV and OS X and iOS and all of that. But uh, this, the particular one I wanted to talk about is, um, was discovered by a researcher in Sweden, uh, Emil Kvarnhammer or something like that. I hope I didn't butcher his name too bad. Who discovered that there's a, the system startup or the system setup command rather. It's a command line tool that's primarily intended for using to adjust the system preferences and that kind of thing. But it uh, has an API that um, allows access to root privileges, mm -hmm. and it was not quite as protected as, as some people had thought it was. The, the bug apparently goes back to at least 2011 and was, was reported to Apple last fall, and uh, so they fixed it in OS X Yosemite 10.10.3 that came out this past week. One of the one of the big issues is that um, they indicated that to fix the issue in uh, OS X older than 10.10, um, 10.9 and earlier, would require a substantial amount of changes on their side and they will not backport the fix. Mm. And this is a, a bit of a concern because the uh, latest estimate is only about 50% of Mac users are uh, on 10.10 or greater. So I, the, but yeah, so the ups, upshot of it is this uh, system setup utility um, has, has some issues, it, you know, the API that they use underlying that has some issues, and it's so uh, extensively, deeply interwoven in the OS that while it's fixed in 10.10, .10, the Apple at this point claims they have no intention of fixing it on earlier releases. Hmm. So, now, how far back in time are we referring to here when we talk about 10.9, 10.8? I don't remember exactly when when those came out, but the uh, 
as I said, the the bug has apparently existed since at least 2011. Mm -hmm. So we're talking um, upwards of four years now. So uh, when we talk about um, uh, users, you know, what for previous versions, my presumption is that there is support for a period of time for each of the previous versions that gives you sort of a window or an opportunity to do the updates. But uh, it, it appears here that they're uh, deciding not to do that. I appreciate the work factor aspect of this, but I was kind of curious uh, if it's really because these are older versions or if it's just the uh, work factor. The, the last update for uh, Lion, which was 10.7, was 2012. The last update for Mountain Lion, 10.8, was 2013. Apple would like everybody to move to Yosemite, to the latest one. Um, but as I said, uh, current estimates are that only about 50% of Mac users are on the 10.10 branch. Okay, well make sure you go to 10.10. That's, I guess, our, our advice here. <laughs> Yep. And uh, I guess keeping with our theme of the Apple patch season, <laughs> just yeah. predecessor to the Windows uh, Windows uh, Microsoft Tuesday. Matt, you, I guess uh, there's another vulnerability that recently was patched there as well. There is another one. It's, it's, um, the, hit, the hits keep coming, unfortunately, for Apple. Uh, this one is called Darwin Nuke. Kaspersky released a little bit of an advisory on this one. It turns out it affects OS X 10.10 and iOS 8. And in this case, uh, it seems that it's kind of uh, a callback to the old ping of death or, um, or WinNuke, as uh, we were talking about earlier. Uh, it seems like a single packet denial of service for these devices. And this is a, when I say denial of service, I don't mean slow down. I mean full-on kernel panic, done. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it seems that it's, it's code related to the parsing of IP options. If I understand it right, you send this, this packet of death the system tries to craft an ICMP response saying something went wrong, mm -hmm. but because of a, a mismatch in, in the header options and the length of the packet, uh, it drops into a code path that just calls panic and you're done. Mm. So um, this is going to be, it's again, patched, but this is going to be a pain in the butt for anybody using these devices. If you happen to be on a public network, you know, be, be prepared for somebody to send you a single packet and take you out and then you reboot and it just happens again. Right. But there's a patch available for it. There is a patch. So. Again, just a reinforcement. Make sure you get up to <laughs> up to date on your patches. But uh, so I assume when you say uh, uh, um, a panic, it's just causing the device to reboot, right? I mean, it's not bricking it. It's not bricking no. it. Yeah. It's putting it to a, it's going to pop up a message saying, "Hey, you had a kernel panic error." It may give you a little bit of information about it, but you, mm. you basically got to hard like restart. The old school point. blue screen of death exactly. that you would get with WinNuke. But because it's Apple, it's much shinier yeah. and prettier, and, and it's probably it's more got friendly. like a okay. <laughs> Some kind of unhappy face or something. I don't know what Apple does. <laughs> All right, very good. So I think we've exhausted the whole Apple topic for the moment, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about of a, uh, a, a Microsoft yeah, vulnerability, a Windows and, vulnerability. And this is like a flashback in itself. It is actually. <laughs> so back in 1997, a researcher um, discovered that you could, if you put in um, to certain programs, URLs that said file colon slash slash. So normally you put in HTTP colon slash slash whatever mm -hmm. for a web type thing. But if you put in file colon slash slash and then some address for something, what that would do is it would make um, notably Internet Explorer, which is the one you would worry about most, but there's a lot of other things like Adobe Flash, other types mm -hmm. of apps that can handle URLs. 
um, reach out to that um, address mm -hmm. using SMB. And when it does that, your device is automatically going to pass your username, your domain name, I think, and your password hash. So here's the vulnerability is that if you can either become man in the middle of some conversation, you don't even necessarily need to do that. You could craft some malicious websites or do some drive-by mm -hmm. type of things where if you have control of a malicious server, user goes to a website that maybe goes to get a GIF image or something, mm -hmm. that malicious website that maybe an attacker controls responds with a 302 redirect that says, no, it's here. It's at file colon slash slash blah, 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 blah which is also a malicious SMB server that he controls. Mm -hmm. Now the client victim machine connects to that, he passes his password hash and whatever to it. That machine would just harvest those together for later password cracking that you know he could try to crack those passwords. Mm -hmm. Really, the GIF angle is a probably good one uh, as an example because those are things that you can bury in image type tags that right. might not even be visible to the user except it'll just show up as like a broken image or something on the web page that they mm -hmm. go to visit. Um, and maybe not even that if you make it a like one by one pixel or smaller type type of image. Mm -hmm. So they mentioned uh, that there's, um, you know, the typical scenarios for abuse are, you know, in targeted attacks, they might try to do these types of things. Malicious ads, which we kind of alluded to with uh, images and whatnot. Um, and Wi-Fi access points. So similar to your ping of death that you were talking about with Darwin Nuke there, if you're on a Wi-Fi access point, it's really easy to um, intercept or inject yourself into conversations on open Wi-Fi access points, mm -hmm. uh, or a, an attacker, I should say, right. can kind of get into the conversations with other users on that Wi-Fi, and then um, uh, leverage this type of attack. This is just a quick list of lots of widely used applications that are vulnerable to this, handling you know, these file URLs and performing this behavior if they're past one of these. So Adobe Reader, big one. Most important one, probably Internet Explorer, Windows Media Player, those ones are you know, uh, really the Internet Explorer. Uh, mm -hmm. Although Excel also, uh, and a bunch of other applications here. And that's simply the fact that they honor the file right. colon slash slash. Right. So if they receive that in some other content, like HTTP or whatever, they'll honor that and try to reach out mm -hmm. to it. Windows libraries that support that functionality? Uh, I didn't get that deep into it. It could be very well that that's why that is, but I'm not quite sure mm -hmm. um, why each application, you know, if it's some common library function or not. Mm -hmm. From a mitigation standpoint, the easiest option probably is to try to block outbound 139 TCP and 445 TCP. Mm -hmm. You can do that either at your endpoint firewall. Of course, that'll prevent you from using SMB at all mm -hmm. to even like stuff on your trusted network. But probably more practically um, is to block it in your network firewall, assuming you've got a trusted network that you're on. Um, that's not going to help you at a Wi-Fi access point. So if you are on a Wi-Fi access point, you know, only the endpoint uh, mm -hmm. firewall would really protect you from this until it gets patched. Um, so it's been around since 1997. It was identified. These guys kind of flipped the script on a little bit, kind of explored it a little bit more in depth. and. Um, uh, have put together a really good white paper on how you can leverage this in various different types of attack scenarios. So it's an interesting read. Um, it's something I hadn't really thought about. It's one of those simple things that, mm -hmm. gee, I never thought about that. That makes sense that this would work. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Yeah, it, it's, it's like you said, it's a matter of, uh, it, this is a case of creative thinking that's been sort of, right. you know, it, the problem's been kind of hanging out there and it was a matter of getting noticed. 
Right, right. And uh, so I, I agree with you. I think the, uh, from an enterprise point of view, you certainly can block it at the perimeter. It's good practice anyway because there are a lot of other things that have traditionally been uh, problematic about SMB. So, you know, that, that would be the recommended approach. Um, I guess I'm wondering to what extent that it's practical, you know, if you know where your file servers are within your enterprise even, I think the, the, the endpoint firewall would be uh, pr perhaps a practical way where you put some specific roles in place. Right. You could probably block everything but allow certain, you know, file servers that you always use all the time right. kind of thing. So that might be, you know, even if you just kind of allocate or uh, allocate it to the data centers that, that you know about and the address blocks associated with those, it's still at least um, close down the, uh, the attack purview significantly. Right. right. Interesting one. So, uh, and, you know, invariably exploits like this turn into botnets. Well, perhaps not invariably, but to a large extent, you know, quite often they do. So, Matt, I guess there have been a couple botnets that were taken down recently. You've gotten a little bit of press around them. Yep. Can you give us a little context? Yeah, so this is great news. Um, so there were two major botnet takedowns in the last week. The first one is the Simda botnet, and that was um, headed up by Interpol and Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit. That uh, is the takedown. The takedown was hit. No, 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 no. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did not mean to make any... No, no, no. These are the good guys taking down yeah. the bad guys. Yeah. Not okay, but wow, <laughs> that was a mistake. Uh, so anyway, uh, Simda was a botnet that was uh, basically making modifications to host files on individual infected machines and redirecting mm -hmm. people's traffic to you know bad guy servers, which has all sorts of you know, you know ripe for abuse sort of things, tricking them to you know phishing, other other things. Mm -hmm. So this was a coordinated takedown with a number of other law enforcement agencies, um, and it's. Good news for the uh, the community, mm -hmm. um, and so at this point, the the only thing left to do is to track and clean up all the infected machines. And, and Shadow Server is giving out information as to how to do this. Mm -hmm. Individual users can go to um, the Interpol website, get information on you know how to find out if I'm infected, what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So a, a big win there. The second sure. one is the uh, AAEH botnet, also, also known as Bbone, and this this takedown was headed up by Europol, mm -hmm. uh, again, with a number of other law enforcement agencies around the world. Bbone, or AAEH, and I think there's actually several other names, which is common for malware, uh, was a downloader. So it was being installed on machines, and its purpose was primarily to install other malware. So their business model was basically access for other malware to get onto the machine. Mm -hmm. So again, this one's been taken down. Score one for the good guys. And there's another. There's a website out there that you can take a look at that Europol is providing information on. Again, how do how do I know I'm infected? What do I do if I'm infected? And information okay. is being sent out to track the the cleanup is that of that okay. as well. Now, considering there are some law enforcement organizations of all this, no arrests that we're aware of at this point, or from what I know, there were no arrests. It's, I believe that at least for the Cinda botnet, I believe there was intention to pursue the the creators of it. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as I know, no, no legal action has been taken against anybody for running these, okay. um, which is you know something that you'd sort of expect for a coordinated law enforcement run event that uh, people are starting to learn over time that taking down the software and the infected machines is one thing, but until mm -hmm. you get rid of the bad actors behind the botnets, they'll simply start up again with a fresh set of infected machines. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really take too much time to transition. I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's one of the um, uh, things to keep in mind. You know, it, 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 the big challenge is finding who's behind these things. 
actually another big challenge behind that is sometimes they're in a place that aren't really accessible by the law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at least the, uh, the, the fact that these were through Interpol and Europol, that they, they are coordinated efforts that are crossing country borders, that's a good sign. Uh, but there are still places that are relatively inaccessible from uh, extradition point of view or to be able to, uh, to bring it. Now, um, they, they didn't sound like they were terribly sophisticated botnets. So both of these are actually very highly polymorphic. Uh, mm -hmm. Simda, creates, they created a new version of that every few hours, mm -hmm. whereas uh, B-Bone or AAEH, they actually created a new version uh, as many times as 19 times a day. So this makes it very, very hard for antivirus companies to stay on top of the latest samples when you have to keep tracking new samples. Mm -hmm. I just kind of locked in on the fact that it was modifying the host, oh yeah, uh, host table, which is basically, you know, that's like that sort of the classic thing that is, if you can modify something, just modify that file, and then you can start redirecting. It also minimizes the amount of code you actually have to leave on the system, as long mm -hmm. as all of the bad stuff is being taken care of on an external server. There's not mm -hmm. much to look for. It's kind of like the uh, DNS changer malware we saw a couple of years back, where all mm -hmm. it was doing was repointing the DNS servers to the same effect, where mm -hmm. all the traffic for that user would be redirected to another place where nefarious things could occur. Mm -hmm. And even if the malware gets cleaned up, they're still going to try to go to those. There's a chance that that tree's going to remain behind. Yeah. As so part a lot. of the remediation. Yeah, and I, get, I think that's perhaps something to share with the audience here, that is, uh, you know, to go mitigating malware, to actually move malware files is one thing, but it's very difficult to identify what all the configuration changes might be. We mentioned just the host table, but there could be all kinds of registration entries that can cause you know, strange behaviors. Uh, if you don't know exactly what you're doing, it's probably best to just re-image the machine and start over. Even if, even if you're backing up the, you know, the data files and taking the chance that reintroducing those might you know, isn't going to uh, cause a problem on the system. The re-imaging process is really the safest, their safest path. So. All right, cool. Well, it's good to see some progress around this. I see, uh, you know, I've seen a lot more evidence that the law enforcement organizations are actively pursuing these. I know the FBI come out with that Operation Clean Slate a while back, and that seems to be continuing to be active. So, all good signs. And. Um, so, you know, I guess the, on the other front of things, uh, we'll, we'll go back to the patching activities, which is the prevent the vulnerabilities that prevent the exploits that prevent the botnets. So, Jim, what can you tell us about what's coming up in, uh, with Microsoft's patches this month? Today is Microsoft Patch Tuesday, and this month, you know, for the month of April, they uh, issued 11 bulletins, uh, four of them. Microsoft rated as critical, and the other seven they rated as important. In order to, for Microsoft to re rate something as critical, um, pretty much it has to be possible to exploit without any user intervention. It, and, and that's something that I have some personal disagreement with Microsoft about how they rate some of these things, but you know, that's my personal problem. Um, you know, if if the infection can be done by, uh, you know, a user, if the user has to click on something, they they won't rate that as critical. Mm -hmm. You know, we how many spams, you know, and spear phishing cases have we seen where they they do a, the bad guys do a good job of luring somebody into clicking something and you know all the, telling them all the time not to click on links in their email doesn't completely stop it so but anyway mm -hmm. uh, four of the 
bulletins this month Microsoft rated as critical. One of them was the Internet Explorer update, which patches um, something like seven or ten CVEs. There was a Microsoft Office bulletin that uh, allowed remote code execution. And this is one that currently there are uh, exploits in the wild. So MS-15-033 is is very important if you're running um, Office 2007 or 2010. Um, Microsoft rates it only as important if you're running Office 2013 or Office 365, but critical for, OS, uh, for 2007, 2010. MS-15-034 is in the HTTP.sys drivers, um, and basically any Windows system that is running a web server, be it IIS or Apache or whatever, um, this, this one is critical to be apply there, that they could be exploited by sending a malicious crafted HTTP GET request. And this is Jim Clausing with a quick update. Uh, at the time we recorded the show on Tuesday afternoon, um, I mentioned that uh, MS-15-034, the HTTP.sys vulnerability, was one of the critical bulletins released by Microsoft. But at that time, there was no exploit in the wild. As of this morning, uh, Thursday morning, April 16th, uh, not only is there an exploit in the wild, uh, there, there are two versions of the exploit in the wild now. One is a simple denial of service, and the second one is a remote code execution. Unfortunately, the uh, denial of service one is the easier one to do, and it is being actively exploited. There is at least uh, one system out of Turkey that is actively scanning across the Internet uh, using the denial of service version of the exploit. So it is now highly imperative that if you have a web server running uh, on a Windows system that you apply MS-15-034 as soon as possible. The uh, exploit works over SSL, so your uh, intrusion prevention systems may not be able to protect you against it. Um, yeah, this one is now highly critical. It's one you need to patch immediately. So we wanted to do this quick update and let you know. Thanks. The other critical one is in the Microsoft graphics component stuff. You know, the same same graphics components that we've been seeing exploited for, you know, 10 years now. Um, another one that they only rated as important but is a little worrisome to me um, is MS-15-037 which is a vulnerability in the Windows task scheduler that allowed privilege escalation. And this one worries me because in, in a couple of recent cases, we've seen the bad guys use a task scheduler to elevate their privileges. So anytime mm -hmm. that I see a task scheduler one, that gets my attention. But um, yeah, 11 bulletins, four of them critical, as we say every month. You know, check them out, but you know, apply them as quickly as possible. You know, I I I have to uh, agree with you in in the context of uh, 
you mentioned what defines critical. You know, I, I remember going back, there was a time, some time ago, where um, a colleague of ours, Michael Singer, was uh, trying to coin the term wormable as, I think he used uh, Wikipedia as a, as a place to kind of just define the term uh, wormable. And uh, I think it ultimately ended up getting removed because we didn't have any references at the time mm -hmm. to be able to back it up, which is one of the basic criteria. But uh, ultimately, you know, it, it sounds like what they define as critical would be something that, if it's remotely executable, it effectively would be a, a wormable exploit or, or vulnerability. I think, you know, you pointed out one that has exploits in the wild. And my opinion, I guess maybe it's the dynamics or being able to change the criticality of a vulnerability based on the fact that there are exploits in the wild. And perhaps that's what's resisting it, but I think that is a factor to consider. Um, you know, even to consider how practical it might be to create an exploit, rel exploit relatively reasonably. Um, I don't know. What are your th thoughts on that, Jim? One of the things that Microsoft has done for the last oh, two years or so is um, give an exploitability assessment. Mm -hmm. the, an exploitability score to, to each of the CVEs covered in these bulletins. And uh, on all of the criticals, uh, there is at least one CVE that has an exploitability index of one. That is, exploitation is likely, you know, in the next 30 days or so. Mm -hmm. And the, the one CVE that is currently being exploited in the wild, that's an exploitability score of zero. <laughs> so the lower the number, the the more critical it is to patch mm -hmm. quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I you know they they won't rate it as a critical if if it can be exploited by drive by, mm -hmm. and that you know and that's that that kind of I disagree with that because if if a user without realizing it just by browsing to some website that's got malicious ads or something can get you know, completely owned, I, I think that's an issue, but that's yeah. an argument that I've had with them before, and I'm probably not going to win that one. <laughs> not anytime soon. But, you know, I think perhaps to your point, um, from our perspective, since we're not going to change how the rating is done, uh, you always have the option of doing your individual assessments, but uh, perhaps it's just simply, uh, you know, looking at the critical vulnerabilities and just patching for those isn't enough. You really need to be uh, patching them much more aggressively and uh, trying to get rid of ones that certainly, at least in the important category, relatively quickly. Right. It, it, especially if you take a look at their exploitability assessment, if if it's got a low exploitability number, you know, they and Microsoft anticipates that there will be exploits for it mm -hmm. in the relatively near future. So those are the ones that you really need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And to your point earlier, you said uh, it, you mentioned drive-by or basically something through a phishing attack or something like that. If it's a user, it, you know, it's basically a privilege escalation is what it amounts to. If you can use uh, the exploit to escalate from a user privilege to, uh, you know, escalate to administrator privileges, certainly that factors into this. Oh, absolutely. Yep. yep. All right. Well, good. Thanks, Jim. And uh, I guess uh, what we're going to do is uh, transition over to John here. You've been 
chiming in from here to there. Yeah, we've got a lot of discussion. <laughs> I'm going I'm to uh, give you a nice little segue to slide into the internet weather with this one. Okay. Uh, so uh, the Talos group, actually in, in uh, cooperation with Cisco, uh, I guess Talos might be... Talos is actually a group within Cisco. Oh, is it's, it? It's they, like their research arm or whatever, exactly. security yeah. research arm. They uh, put out this report up on Cisco's blog. Interesting report about a group that they call SSH Psychos, also Group 93, I think. Mm. Basically, the group is out there scanning the internet very aggressively uh, for SSH servers that are listening. And then once they find them, they brute force their, or they attempt to brute force their way in. They have a password list of about 300,000 or so uh, passwords that they'll try to brute force on each target that they're able to identify. Um, they've been tracking this one for a while. I mean, we talk about you know SSH. Uh, scanning and all the other types mm -hmm. of scanning that we see in the internet weather. Uh, so I'm sure some of this is mixed in with all of that activity we see. What they what their report is kind of identifying is that there's really two primary address blocks. Uh, it used to be just one, uh, which we have up on the screen in this um, chart here. And at some point, right before they're about to do some kind of takedown operations for their own mitigation operations, I should say, they actually switch to another one. Uh, another address block, and uh, but all of the scanning activity has been primarily sourced from those two address blocks. Mm -hmm. So they scan from there, they do their brute forcing from there. Once they get into a machine, we've seen this kind of stuff before as well. A lot of the IoT stuff actually works like this, uh, where they'll brute force their way into the SSH on these little home routers and whatnot. Uh, but once they get in there, they download a DDoS rootkit onto the machine, which then goes and reaches back to a command and control, which retrieves an XOR encoded config file, mm -hmm. and they decoded one of those and showed it uh, in this report. I recommend that you read the report, it's kind of interesting. Uh, contains a list of IPs to deny, to not allow to talk to this device anymore, mm. which is an interesting list of IPs when you go look at it. Uh, people <laughs> they don't want to get in to this device listed? that they've just compromised. <laughs> uh, I won't comment. And uh, it also lists a bunch of file names that it should go look for and delete. Uh -huh. which if you look at those also looks like it might be cleaning up in case somebody else had already compromised this device right. and dropped other malware on this machine. So it's, it's whoever they are, they seem to know some of these other tool sets that are in play and they go look for them and try to remove them so that mm -hmm. they own this device you know, in as much of entirety as possible. Uh, Cisco uh, kind of worked with Level 3 uh, one of the larger ISPs out there. Level 3 actually initiated some activity to black hole these two address blocks uh, within their own network to help protect any of their customers that might be on there from getting um, uh, scanned and brute forced into. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting chart that I uh, pulled together here. So this shows those two address blocks that, they, um, that they're scanning from, the attackers. And their report, the first bubble here on the left-hand side, uh, talks about that their report says they're kind of certain that this activity might have started back in the June 2014 timeframe. Mm -hmm. If that's true, there's some other address blocks they were originating that scanning from because it doesn't show up in our report. But um, somewhere in the November timeframe uh, here, this is a 180-day chart. I looked back all the way for a year and there was nothing, so I just kind of mm -hmm. abbreviated here. But somewhere in the November timeframe, we see that first address block coming into play. And in the report, they mentioned that on March 30th that they pivoted to that new address block. And that's represented in the blue here. Kind of interesting, though, that we actually saw the activity maybe, uh, I don't know, four or five days prior to the March 30th there uh, from this new address block. So I don't, 
I think there was more of an overlap transition as opposed to a cut and go to the new one right. and in yeah. one phase there. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that that first IP block, when I did that, my last update on what we were seeing in the Kippo honeypots, nine of the ten top ten addresses that were scanning our honeypot were from that that first net block. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, we definitely saw some of this. So I guess the long and short of it, interesting that they did some uh, black hole routing to try mm -hmm. to you know protect themselves. But again, and we talked about this a lot in other cases, this is kind of a whack-a-mole kind of approach. Mm -hmm. It'd be nicer to try to figure out who the actors are behind it, work with law enforcement to get them so that they cannot continue their operation. Right. However, um, you know, doing something is better than nothing in a lot of cases, uh, especially when you could do something that's going to have uh, a large positive effect, you know, blocking blocks of address blocks is going to really hinder that actor set because now they need to go to a whole different location. Mm -hmm. Blocking IPs at a time is not really effective. That's right. really whack-a-mole, but um, anyway. Yeah, well, it's a, it becomes one of the challenges here. And, you know, even uh, you get to wonder to what extent they're really dependent on address blocks for what they're doing. Right. I mean, they, they could just move into a bunch of different cloud devices which have different addresses and would be much harder to track in the same context that's being done here. So uh, I think that's, uh, I, I think your point is valid. It, you know, um, blocking addresses really is not the solution to botnets. We've, uh, we've learned that through many years of experience. So, yeah. Okay, uh, go, going on to some other topics here related to internet weather. Uh, first item is, you know, we've been reporting for a while some uh, denial service attacks, uh, basically an increase in denial service attacks using SNMP, that's port 161 UDP. So we see this as um, a source port uh, 161 UDP because it's a reflection attack from uh, uh, SNMP servers that are on the internet. That activity seems to be relaxing a little bit not as significant as we'd seen in the past, but uh, it hasn't really been that big of an issue in any case. Uh, and what I mean by that, to put this in the context, I sort of overlaid the other reflective denial service attack activity over the last 180 days in this graph here. And you can see kind of down here in the, uh, you know, the dark blue, that represents the contribution from SNMP activity, along with the other contributions from uh, uh, character generator, uh, packet fragmentation, DNS reflection attack activity, NTP, that's port 123, as well as SSDP, that's port 1900 UDP. So not really big change. It seems to be uh, relatively stable. We do actually uh, see a little bit of a surge in activity here that uh, was relatively recent, I think uh, a couple of weeks ago. It looks like character generator was uh, the bigger contributor, perhaps uh, sort of a shift from the SNMP to uh, character generator in this activity. And I think character generator uh, creates a lot of uh, fragmented it, it packets. It will tend to create fragmented packets yeah. if, uh, if done correctly, yeah. John, you reported on this last week. I think this is uh, perhaps the third week of us reporting on this activity. Still mystery. Uh, scan sources, what we detect is scan sources on 4143 UDP as well as 4183 UDP. Uh, we're showing 30 days of data here, so it's relatively new activity starting around the end of uh, March, near the end of March there. It appears to be uh, P2P activity. 
And uh, you had done a little bit of uh, packet analysis on this to get some insight on what's going on. I haven't been able to isolate any two devices talking to each other in any kind of peer-to-peer -peer communication, though. Um, I can't say that I've tried real hard. Well, and there aren't that many contributors here. Right. So the, uh, the network's relatively small still. I mean, it's, it's still in the you know, thousands, but it's not you know, relative to the size of the internet, relatively small. So it would be, you know, kind of a needle in a haystack in a sense. Yeah, that's a little bit of the problem. I also did some botnet analysis just to see if there's, is there anything other than peer-to-peer -peer mm -hmm. in the kind of traditional centralized command and control that we're used to looking for? So doing some NetFlow analysis, say, okay, throw away all the scanning activity they're doing. What else are they all talking to in common? Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't see anything, right. uh, which is interesting. I mean, maybe not unexpected, I was kind of hoping I might find something, but uh, didn't find anything right away. So yeah. uh, that could be a visibility thing too. Maybe I didn't, you know, mm -hmm. have enough flow data or see, you know, as many devices I need to to make that kind of correlation. But or mm -hmm. maybe they only check in once a day, and I missed yeah. that that time. Span. For some reason, and this is just a hunch on my part, that uh, you know, I kind of reflect back on this storm botnet from from years ago and how mm -hmm. it kind of behaved. You did a lot of analysis or tracking of that botnet back then. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on how this, uh, any similarities to this one? I don't know enough about it yet, to be honest with you. This is still a little bit of a mystery to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the Storm botnet we did, in some of these peer-to-peer -peer botnets, you'll find that they, you know, whoever runs them compromises, you know, a large set of these lower tier ones, these mm -hmm. devices that can participate. And then when they identify that some of these participants actually have direct internet access and they can mm -hmm. act as kind of a command and control, they'll elevate those to like an upper echelon tier right. as a more privileged part of the, um, of the botnet. And uh, Storm did that. Uh, there's another one that did that too that's escaping me right now. I want to say actually like one of the Zeus game overs or one of those, somebody right. had a peer-to-peer -peer component think, in one right. of the Zeus. Yeah, that's correct. We did have like higher level nodes, like centralized. Yeah, vaguely mm -hmm. remember something about that. Or, or boxes, yeah. Maybe, there's something like that here, but we don't even really know right. what this is, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, I think this is fundamentally one of the challenges when you have these Internet of Things kind of scenarios, and they don't have any virus, and so the antivirus vendors aren't picking it up. They're not sitting in front of a firewall, and so the firewall vendors aren't picking it up. And so they're, it's kind of hidden for a period of time until we can uh, get, get a little bit of handle on this one. So yeah, and the other thing that's interesting about it is it's a wide array, as far as I can tell, of different types of IoT devices. It's mm -hmm. not you know, a particular vendor model or a small set of vendor models. It seems like there's qu quite a large array of different types of devices, which makes me kind of scratch my head is, how does somebody know how to compromise so many of these yeah. well, different I mean, types of devices? Those ports 4143 and 4183 may not be the infection vectors themselves. They just may have no. chosen those for the peer-to-peer. -peer right, agreed. But when you actually look at what those devices are that are participating, if you poke them and do some fingerprinting, you'll see that they're all different. Mm -hmm. They're all very different types of different devices, things, so. different manufacturers. Um, yeah. So I don't know what to make of that yet. All right. Uh, so just uh, another observation about this. I think, John, you pointed this out last week as well. It's still relatively consistent. That is, the 4143 seems to be very much centered around the United States, whereas the 4183, uh, basically in other parts of the world. It seems like there's been a little more smearing between the two, perhaps. Um, and I, I used a larger address sample in this case than you did last week, so uh, perhaps that's a factor associated okay. with this. 
Uh, looking at the top 10 most probed ports at the top of the list here, port 22 TCP. Well, we've kind of already had a little discussion about that and uh, some of the uh, implications associated with it. Uh, followed by 135 TCP, that's still going strong as we've been reporting for many weeks now. Uh, 53 UDP has jumped up a little bit, uh, so we're going to take a quick look at that. I think it's mostly related to denial service attack activity. There were actually a couple of scenarios that contributed to this, so we'll talk about that in a moment. 443 TCP, that also moved up, but it, uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as a significant anomaly or, or change in the behavior that relative to what we've seen in in the past. Port 80 TCP, it's uh, web 445 TCP, a regular on the on the list here. And then uh, the uh, 1433 Microsoft SQL database, uh, 3389, that's a remote desktop protocol. 8080 TCP, we're going to take a little bit of a look at that later on in the context of sources doing the probing. And then uh, we'll also take a look at port 23 later as well. You know, I'm wondering, have we ever seen 443 have a higher volume than 80? I always kind of assumed in my head that 80 and 443 scanning, we're maybe looking for the same kinds of, of vulnerable software, simply one under HTTP and one under SSL? Yeah, I think the uh, one of the things with uh, 443 is it's climbed in terms of the number of probes, partly because of uh, vulnerabilities like Heartbleed, Heartbleed and okay. Poodle and Ghost. And mm. so there's a lot of, it's not necessarily even malicious scanning per se. Uh, you can't tell from a, a probing point of view, even if you're on the receiving end of it. Uh, but there are a lot of researchers that are running around and probing things, and so that contributes to uh, the change here, where they're not probing on 80, they're probing That's a good point. exclusively on 443. Well, and there may also be, uh, there are uh, more sites that are forcing you know, folks to go to HTTPS rather than HTTP, well, so that may also contribute to some of that. That's true. Flip flop. That's true. As I mentioned, uh, you know, port 53 UDP climbed quite a bit here, and uh, there are actually two contributing factors here. Some of it is related to uh, a reflective denial of service attacks. So on the request side, if there's a spoof source, if it's going out to and sending requests out to lots of DNS servers to get responses back to a uh, uh, to that target. Uh, that will look like scanning activity in the, uh, in the analysis. And then the other factor that's here is I think we've seen some cases where there have just been uh, source addresses um, that are basically a spoof source most likely where they're just spraying out to a, an address block that they're targeting. So, I mean, I think this is significant if you are uh, subscribing to a DDoS mitigation service that you have the capability to be able to protect address blocks because if they're all sort of homed off the same circuit, uh, the attacker can spread the attack across all the addresses on that block and to be able to try to fill up the circuit. And uh, that appears to be the case that they're doing in a, in a couple of the attacks here, I think, notably the, the spikes that you're seeing. And then, as I mentioned, uh, port 23 has moved down in the list. We had seen it for much farther up on the list, and so I thought it'd be worth pointing out. This is actually uh, looking at the number of probes we're seeing on port 23 for the last 180 days. We are relatively low compared to some of the other activity, but what I really wanted to sort of point out is this trend that we've seen over the last several weeks where there's a spike in the activity and then this de deterioration, which is sort of a telltale sign of a botnet where lots of uh, destinations or targets have been told to do some scanning activity and over time it sort of uh, deteriorates. 
And the, uh, these little spikes that are in here are actually, uh, I think, researchers that are kind of probing around. Uh, I'd have to go back and validate it because there are actually some, uh, I, what I'd describe as malicious actors doing the same sort of thing. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, uh, we have at the top of the list port 445 TCP. So uh, that had been taken over by port 23 some time ago. Um, but uh, 445 is back at the top of the list, followed by uh, port 80 TCP, and then uh, we see port 23 that's uh, moved farther down the list. And then we're also seeing the uh, port 41, 43, and 4183 in the list as well. Last that we'll mention here, but not least, is port 8080 TCP. And John, you had brought up 8080 TCP last week. I did. Uh, you had showed 30 days where there was a clear, you know, ramping up activity. So I just thought I'd give a little bit of a different perspective looking back 180 days, actually 90 days we're looking at here. And uh, it is true most of these are from China, uh, although I think the, um, the demographic actually may be a little bit misleading. So I think you'd noted that most of the probes were from China. Actually, most of the sources are pretty well dispersed. And so that was one of the things that, oh, okay. uh, one of the observations is looking at, in terms of the number of sources, um, the, uh, the, uh, the Chinese probes were more aggressive than the The Chinese the probes tend, have tended to be right. more aggressive, but there are lots of other places and it, it's, it's very widespread. Right. So right. Uh, perhaps could provide a geographic map if this continues in the state next week. But also, it's, it's also interesting to see that there's sort of been this long trend of deterioration and then a quick growth in activity and that's uh, that's continuing forward as well. It'll be interesting uh, clearly to see if that decline slopes down again over the next whatever right. four weeks or so. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us and if you'd like to get in touch with us you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can find ThreatTrack on the AT&T Tech channel that's att.com slash threattrack. Uh, it's available on YouTube as well as iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well. Our handle is at ATT Security. So thanks, Jim. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.